Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Greetings and welcome to the Games Master Team Championships and welcome to 1994. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode episode podcast guide through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, and I always stole the bow and arrow from the shopkeeper on Zelda 4 for the Game Boy. And I am Ash Versus. Luke, do your stuff. This episode aired on the 4th of January, 1994. But we got no change on either chart. Clint Eastwood's Perfect World is still top of the UK box office. And yes, Mr. Blobby is still the UK's number one top of the pops hit. This song is often cited as one of the worst songs ever written. It was written by a guy called Philip Raxter, which I must assume is a pseudonym. Because why would you put your real name to this song? We talked the other week about how you could get bragging rights by saying, oh, when I was 12, I went on a date with Jet from Gladiators. No one is admitting to writing this at a party, not unless they want an excuse to leave. It came out on the 22nd of November, 1993, and it featured Mr. Blobby. Now, for those of you that didn't grow up in the 90s and have somehow avoided this kind of herpes-ridden blancmange that was spawned from Noel's house party, essentially, Mr. Blobby was originally a way for Noel Edmonds to pull pranks or gotchas on celebrities. So kind of like a very family-friendly punked. And often the setup as part of Noel's house party would be that these people would think they'd been booked to appear on a new children's TV show recorded by the BBC or someone else with Mr Blobby. It would be a cooking segment. 
or an art segment and invariably the character would be out of control they'd get covered in paint or food or god knows what else and then at the end the head would flip back on the costume and it'd be Noel Edmonds and he'd hand them the gotcha and he'd be like gotcha and then they'd be like oh I was gonna kill you and I may still but oh I'm on television and therefore I've got to be nice not all celebrities were some apparently went very wrong and we never saw those apparently there are Mm. gotchas that never made it to air because celebrities were literally ready to kill him could be an urban myth I hope it isn't I really, really hope it isn't. But this single came out kind of at the peak of Mr. Blobby's, I guess, run. He did go on to have other merchandising. He had a cartoon series. There were toys. There were all sorts. But this was when Blobby Mania was running wild and everyone was bleeding pink and yellow. You're welcome, wrestling fans. (laughs) (laughs) You know, this is early 1994, so I've just turned eight years old. I am the target audience for Mr. Blobby. And let me tell you this, I bloody love Mr. Blobby. And eight-year-old Luke thought that Mr. Blobby was fucking hilarious. And I love watching Noel's house party. But aside from the gunge, I would just want to see what Blobby was going to do. I really was the target audience for this. And I actually remember like this song coming out and having, I don't think I had the single for it. I definitely didn't have the single for it. But I remember being excited that Mr. Blobby had a sock. We milked everything we could out of meatloafs. I'd do anything for love, bracket, but I won't do that. I'd have rather had another three weeks of that than have to endure this. Because this goes to number one, not once, but twice. Yeah, there was that one week gap with Take That, uh, Babe. And it just went straight back up into the number one position. It's kind of funny as well, because... As I said, I remember the song coming out. I actually remember an urban myth uh, that it was too unlimited, where the, the the band that actually did the song and Mr. Blobby just, you know, provided the vocals or whatever. But I was like, I was kind of curious because I don't think I could have told you how the song went. Like if you'd have asked me at the start of this podcast record, uh, when we started doing this last year, how does the Mr. Blobby song go? I'd have been able to do the Blobby, it's Mr. Blobby. Yeah, that. Yeah. I was listening to it because obviously I had to get the track for bed music, you know, when it was number one and when we talked about it previously on the podcast. And I have no recollection of the actual music of Oliver. And it is proper annoying noise. And I can see why eight-year-old me liked it, obviously. But 35-year-old me, which would have been, you know, sort of like my parents sort of age as well, would have been like, God, this is proper annoying. Parents would not have been alone. An MTV critic said that Blobby tried to kill music. (laughs) It's frequently ranked as one of the worst songs of all time. Rupert Hawksley for The Telegraph ranked it as the worst Christmas number one in history, arguing that Blobby set the bar so low it's hard to imagine it could ever be usurped. And I don't know when he made that quote, but even though, what is it, Lad Baby? Oh, that, yeah, that stuff, I cannot get on board with that, man. I don't, maybe I'm just an old curmudgeon, but I cannot get on board with it. It's not for me, but is it worse than Blobby? No. No. No, it's not. 
It's been named the third worst top 10 single of all time. Gemma Wheatley of the Daily Star called it the third most annoying track ever written. It placed first in an HMV public poll of the worst ever festive songs and second in a VH1 viewer survey. Today I learned VH1 has viewers. Of the worst number one single of all time and Channel 4 ranked it sixth in a poll of the 100 worst pop songs in history. I'm really curious what came above it. I'm so curious. There were five other songs. I cannot even imagine what they are. The music video was arguably better watched silent because they did spoof a number of music videos there that would be completely lost on the target audience. There were spoofs of Addicted to Love by Robert Palmer, Stay by Shakespeare's sister, Snap's Rhythm is a Dancer, and I Can't Dance by Genesis. Because you know what eight-year-olds love, Luke? It's Phil Collins. That's that's where it's at, man. The video featured Mr. Blobby, Noel Edmonds, Howard Vorderman, Garth Crooks, and Top Gear presenter Jeremy Clarkson as Mr. Blobby's limo driver. There's so many jokes to be made of that that I just don't even know where to start. (laughs) But needless to say, you've already heard this song, and in a full-on Al Gore moment, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. And this was the brainchild of one Simon Cowell. He is the man to thank for this. And I I think I mentioned on the Gladiators episode we did for uh, UCP Extra over on Patreon that it felt like that's the sort of thing um, Simon Cowell would have been involved in because he loves that that sort of caper. And when you kind of learn, it's like, oh, yeah, it's a novelty song. Yeah, it was Simon Cowell. And you're like, those two things just instantly make sense. It just, it, peanut butter and jam, those two things just go together. It's a proper Simon Cowell novelty song project. It's right up there with Slam Jam. And when I think of Simon Cowell and a lot of these novelty songs, I just go straight back to one of our favourite films to talk about, Jurassic Park and Dr. Ian Malcolm going, you scientists, just, you know, just because you could, you didn't stop to think if you should. And that applies to Simon Cowell. He comes up with these bloody ideas and he never stops to think if he should because he never gets past the fact of, will this make me money? Mm -hmm. And it made him a lot of money, man. I don't begrudge people for earning a lot of money for work that they do, but for him, I would make the exception for any work he did towards this song, or indeed a large amount of the other spoof singles he was involved in. Well, it is 1994. We've got a whole year to look ahead on. Um, we're not going to dive into you know these games into much detail, but I did want to just sort of like paint a picture of what we can expect from the year of 1994, because it's a big old year for games. Listen to this lineup of games that we're going to get this year. And this really is just a snapshot of of games as well. Sonic the Hedgehog 3, Donkey Kong 94, Super Metroid, Super Street Fighter 2, Donkey Kong Country, Earthworm Jim, Doom 2, Sonic & Knuckles, Warcraft, and Tekken. We have got a cracking set of games to be coming out in 1994, and I cannot wait to be diving into all of them. The concept that we get Sonic 3, Sonic & Knuckles, and Tekken in the same year this period of the 90s felt far more spaced out when i was thinking about it because the concept that we are going from 16 bits straight into the future of 32 bit and that sonic and tekken will be sharing airtime and magazine space it's mind-blowing there's so many great games to look forward to what really took me by surprise and i I guess because i hadn't really given it much thought by the end of this calendar year, the PlayStation is out in Japan. 
And by the end of this calendar year, it just feels like we're really in a, We've said this before, it just really feels like we're in a foothold of the Mega Drive and the Super Nintendo and the big powerhouses. And by the end of this year, the 32-bit PlayStation is out. I suppose in fairness, most years that we've covered, because obviously we started in 1992, we are usually skipping six months of a year between seasons. So maybe that plays into it. But even so, just taking a look at what's achieved each year. As much as I love where games are now and some of the things that I'm playing now and where the technology is, the leaps from the 8-bit to the 16-bit to the enhanced 16-bit with things like the Super FX chip to CD-ROMs to 32-bit, what a wild time to be covering. What an absolute trip. And I can't think of any better way to kick off this year and looking at the bright future of gaming than looking at a magazine feature on the Atari Jaguar. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's one of the mega Mungus prizes that the team championships are currently vying for and for the room of the future. I mean, Mung is definitely a word that I would use to describe the Atari Jaguar. But this is an article. It's center stage in Games Master magazine. It's their big hardware preview. It's only a few pages before a scintillating interview with Peter Molyneux. You could read sarcasm into my voice there. I'll leave it up to you. But in a few months' time, you're going to be bombarded with TV ads that will seriously sneer at your SNES or Mega Drive. Your machines are going to be dismissed as unworthy in comparison to the Atari Jaguar. Games Master went to the official launch party in New York to see what all the fuss was about. It was a pretty good do all round. Lots of green trees on Time and Life's 48th floor. Hiding girlies dressed, sort of, in cat suits. Plenty of free-flowing booze, Atari bigwigs, and of course, a few Jaguars so you could actually have a go and decide whether you really wanted to buy one of the things or not. Only problem was that if you did get carried away by it all, you couldn't actually get hold of one. But that should be sorted by now. Pop down to your local HMV or Virgin Megastore and they'll have loads of them. When you buy the Jaguar, you get Cybermorph, a game we've talked about previously. And also that rather insubstantial controller with it. None of the games available now are especially original, but they all looked a damn sight better than their comparative efforts. The most exciting, as far as we're concerned at least, is Crescent Galaxy, a horizontal shoot-em-up, just because it looks so brilliant with loads of colours and textures. They then go on to mention other games. Luke, you've got a Jaguar. You've, I presume you've got a mm -hmm. bunch of games for it as well. Not many, but yeah. I'll just go through some of these games and see if you've heard of them. Evolution Dino Dudes. Nope. Oh, that's one of the big listed games here. Raiden. No. That's it. That's that's it. That's the ones in the main <laughs> article. Now, they do go on down below, but what we've got below for the most part, they mentioned Virgin Interactive, who are apparently doing Aladdin and Dragon. I'm fairly certain Aladdin never came out for the Jaguar. Yeah, I think we have said this before that it doesn't come out. Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, that might have, because I, I actually really like the SNES version of that. It was an unconventional beat-em-up, but it was a lot of fun. We could have had Dragon the Bruce Lee story as the final game in last week's episode. Just bringing it out there. That would have been better than Elf Bloody Mania. I'm pretty sure we get it in Series 4, actually. Oh, we do, but I'm just still sore about being subjected to Elf Mania. But Gremlin are going to do Zool 2. Accolade have got five titles, including Jack Nicholas Golf. And Activision are doing Return to Zork. So there are games out there, but none of them are what you'd call original and there is a very marketing bump heavy sidebar that says this is why it's so much better. And they say that it's a far more enticing option to develop for than the other new kid, the 3DO, because 
it's faster, the games look prettier and more realistic, and the Jaguar has stereo 16-bit CD quality sound. Now, faster? Okay, there's some architectural flim-flam with the Jaguar, let's leave that one aside. The games look prettier and more realistic. Hmm, they only here compare it to the SNES and the Mega Drive. 32,000 odd colours on the SNES, 512 on the Mega Drive. We come back to this thing we've brought up before, the 16-bit CD quality sound. Luke, mm-hmm. what format is a 3DO? A, four, a 3DO? Yeah. A 3DO is CD. Right. So, assuming that they act as most other CD-ROM games do of that time, and indeed forward into the PlayStation era, what would you assume the quality of sound is on a 3DO? I'd expect it to probably be CD quality. It is shonky as hell journalism because they're saying this is why it's better than the 3DO and then they never compare it to the 3DO. They compare it to the SNES and the Mega Drive. And I would also say on the comparison between the SNES and the Mega Drive, and I'm pretty sure that Jazz said this in the review of Cybermorph, I think Cybermorph looks way worse than Starwing does. I think Starwing looks far, far better than it. It sounds better as well. Starwing has Mm -hmm. music. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Cybermorph has a lady that says this. Where did you but one last box out. They ask, what's next? And the magazine says, if everything goes according to Atari's plan, then you're going to be totally bombarded with Jaguar consoles, imaginatively named Jaguar 1, Jaguar 2, Jaguar 3. There'll be a CD attachment thing, so you can play CD games and do lots of other creative, not just game type things, and possibly even a Jaguar computer, a handheld machine, and a VR attachment of some description. In the meantime, though, you'll have to make do with the links which they're also planning to thrust back upon you. Looks like they might have lots of spare ones sitting in a warehouse somewhere. You have been warned. So even though that is a massive bluff piece bigging up the Atari Jaguar, probably because it flew some journalists out to New York, they're still taking swipes at Atari by basically going, yeah, guess what? They're bringing back from the same landfill that E.T.'s in. Yeah, I know, right? Like, absolutely burying the links there. Quite rightly so uh, as well. And I love this idea that we were going to get, like, sequels to the Atari Jaguar. And the CD, you know, the CD add-on does come out for it eventually. Um, not that it's much better. You know, we're going to hear a bit more from the Jaguar, I guess, you know, as as time goes on throughout 1994. But I would wager by the end of 1994, we're not going to be hearing much else from it. No, in fact, I'd say one of the biggest bits that we're probably going to talk about it for will be on this episode. Yeah, pretty much. Hello, and welcome to another hot heat where three more teams are battling out for a place in our championship semi-final. The challenges are tough, and that's exactly how we want them. Right, let's go over and meet the three teams taking part in tonight's proceedings. This way. Well, let's get into that episode. And you may think, well, that certainly sounds familiar. And you'd be right. Although very, I found this very interesting. This is the same opening as episode 15. But... It's actually just the same rushes, and they've cut it slightly differently, which I really, really like. This isn't like Series 2, where it was just lifted wholesale, and it was just the rushes put up on, on screen. This is, they've got the rushes of decks, but they've interspersed different shots of the crowd to make it feel like it's new, but it is the exact same intro. And I, I actually don't mind that. I think that's actually quite an inventive way to reuse the footage and intros that you've got. I wonder if part of it is because, as we've commented, this crowd is loud, and they've probably ended up with a bunch of footage where they're like, we can't hear him. We literally mm. can't hear him over the noise of the crowd. I'll bring him up again. Thank heavens for lip, ribbon, microphones, because otherwise <laughs> the commentary would probably be unusable. If they were using the same handheld Sennheisers or Schurz or whatever it was that they were using in the previous seasons for the commentary, 
they'd have to loop the entire thing. They'd have to get them all in to re-record the commentary, which also would mean they wouldn't be able to use any actual footage of Dex or Dave during the commentary sections. For all my criticisms of the production team, well done, production team, because you made you made lemonade out of lemons with this one. Let's go, stop, all right, this is the Conquerors. They're the Conquerors, what's your name? Chris. Chris, you're the team captain? Yeah. You are? Okay, what's your name? Cliff. Cliff? Adam. Adam. All right, lads, how are you going to do tonight? We're going to win hands down. You're going to win hands down? Good luck to them, eh? Yeah! Strood. And what's your name? Dean. Dean? Matt. Matt. Dean? Dean, Matt and Dean. All right, well, you're meant to be the nightmares. You don't look very scary. Tough. You're tough. Yeah. What are we going to do to the other team? Smash them. Right, good luck to you, lads. Give them a big cheer. Ian from the Live Wires. Rob. Rob? Joe. Joe. Right, where are you from, Ian? Brentwood. Brentwood, so you heard the other two teams giving it the big one. What do you reckon you're going to do tonight? Uh, giving it all the math, we're just going to fresh them. Ah, they're going to fresh you. Yeah. It's going to win. Yeah, they're just going to win. All right, then. Well, let's have a big cheer for this team, the Live Wires. Some interesting teams we've got this week the Conquerors, the Nightmares, and the Live Wires. But what I particularly like about this is that the crowd seem really rabid this week like this crowd seems like so, so hot because like you know dex opens the show telling them to shut up but then he's telling them to shut up as he's introducing the teams as well particularly when we get to the live wire it's like i can't even get a word in edgeways because the crowd just seemed like so amped for all of this oh they've got their supporters from brentwood with them but yeah we got the conquerors which has got captain chris cliff and adam cliff will go on to forge an obsession with the nintendo 64 but chris reckons they're going to win hands down I like these teams because they actually feel a bit comfortable with the smack talk. They're not going overboard. They're not going Amstel. They're, mm-hmm. they're just going, yeah, we're this team. We're going to beat them. It's, it's super simple promo time. Because they don't overreach, it's effective. The only truly awkward bit is the person saying that they're tough just as their voice broke. <laughs> yeah. Poor bugger. Well, it's time for our first challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? For my first challenge, I've selected the high-performance racing game Top Gear 2 for the Super Nintendo. The simple task is to complete one lap of the Australian circuit in the quickest time. Your car is equipped with flaming nitros, which will give you an extra boost of speed if you find yourself lagging. I'll award five points for the fastest time, Two points for the runners-up, and zero for the slowest. Top Gear 2 on the Super Nintendo. We haven't had a lot of driving challenges in the team championship, so it was only that Mario Kart like tiebreaker thing that they did a few episodes ago. So this feels like it's quite a nice little change of pace, if you pardon the pun. And it's getting around the Australian circuit in the quickest time possible. And because it's Top Gear 2, you've got lots of nitro and things like that. But as we find out with our players, don't use the nitro when you're going around the corners. Oh, yeah, they definitely discover that. But we've had Top Gear, the first game on here, I believe. And when we talked about it in the reviews, one of the bits of information I brought to the table is they actually just recycled a lot of graphical elements from the Lotus Racing Trilogy. Second game, time to up the ante. So do you know what they did, Luke? What did they do? 
they rehashed the graphics from the Lotus Trilogy again, (laughs) making it possibly some of the most rehashed sprite work in a racing game in the world. (laughs) So the game is the fantastic and well-loved Top Gear 2. Right, we've got Adam from The Conquerors. He's in the hot seat and here's Dave Perry. He's going to tell us all about him. Dave, do your stuff. Well, Adam reckons that he can finish Mario Kart winning every single race. But in our auditions, he failed to qualify on (laughs) F1. So Adam is definitely a man with something to prove tonight. Or he talks a lot of rubbish. Anyway, let's find out. Well, Dex thinks it's a well-loved game. uh, And Adam from The Conquerors is up first. Apparently, he can complete every race on Mario Kart. But according to Dave, he didn't qualify on F1. Which is, in fairness, though, very different sort of game. Racing, yes, but they are very different styles of racing games. Yeah, and Top Gear 2 is also neither of them. There is a definite shift in this episode. Because we've been getting more and more of Dave actually presenting directly to camera and doing his rundown of the facts. But someone in this episode has clearly seen some of the early E17 videos because Dave is not just performing to camera, he's performing down to camera. And I'm ready for him to start dropping some shapes and that because his hands, <laughs> he's, he looks like he's about to go for three baked potatoes, Luke. He's, he's, da- yeah. he's doing his, his lad thing. But essentially, Adam goes round, he uses Nitro the entire time, which does mean he takes a tumble because he won't not use it when he's going round the corner. Um, Dex is very impressed by the car. He's like, oh, it is a nice car though, isn't it, Dave? Hey, well, it's a lovely vehicle, that one, isn't it, Dave? It's a nice car. It's a nice bit. And he ends the round with 33.51 seconds, which feels like it's a fairly good time. He peaks at fourth position, which isn't bad when you're only doing one lap. One of the key bits they point out is normally when you're doing a multi-lap race, you'd want to pace your nitros. You'd want to space them out over the laps. But no, one lap race, burn them all, burn it to the ground, treat it like it's the opening sequence from a Fast and Furious sequel, just gun it like Vin Diesel. Maybe don't do it, yeah, as you said, when going around the corners, (laughs) because really... What did you think would happen? He's from the nightmares. Let's see if he's really scary. Dave, tell us the SP on this man. Well, Matthew's been boasting that he can complete Mortal Kombat on very hard. I don't know how that's going to help him on a racing challenge, though. Good luck to Matthew anyway. God knows he's going to need it. Right! Now, Matthew of the nightmares is up next. He boasts he can beat Mortal Kombat on very hard, which Dave admits doesn't know how that's going to help him on a racing challenge. It's an excellent point. It is an excellent point, and I do like that Clearly, Dave has been given like a list of all the facts for the competitors. And clearly, if they don't have one that's relevant to the challenge, he's just picking the one that's the most interesting, but also kind of bitch slapping them a bit at the same time of like, oh, he can do this in Mortal Kombat. But this is a racing game, so he's sod out of luck. Yeah, the next kid gets that treatment as well. But before we get to that, Matthew's problem when he's on this game, it's not the nitros, it's not getting around the corners, it's he cannot get past cars. And he keeps bumping into all of the people that's in front of him. So he's never getting past like the big clump of cars at the start so you can just get onto an open stretch of road so all he's doing is just bump hitting one bump hitting one hit bump hitting another and he ends up with 37.06 so he's already into second place and it's not a great performance from matthew unfortunately up last we've got rob and his useless gaming fact is that he won a super soccer match 35 nil and again dave doesn't know how that will help him here but the race is off He spanks the nitros throughout, also spins out on a corner, but he does make it up to fourth position. And therefore, it is not that surprising when he doesn't just equal Adam's time, he beats it by 
Oh, just over a second. It's tight. Yeah. He gets 33.20 seconds just That's squeaking right, yeah. that pole position. Yeah, and it's like it's fractions of a second because Adam got 33.51. So yeah, to Rob to get 33.20 is like really fractions of a second stuff. It's really, really like it's it, it's it was quite impressive and it was quite a nice, like it was a really tight finish for it as well to give his team the five points, which actually I I, I quite liked as a you know as a way to sort of like round this challenge off. It was a really well-paced challenge, and for a single lap set of races, compared to the last time we had a single lap, which was the tiebreaker Mario Kart. This one felt well-paced and quite a bit of fun, and there was a fair amount of tension. Really liked it. But, end of round one, Dex, what are the scores? The Nightmares came last, so they've got zero points. Then in second position, you've got the Conquerors, who did not quite so bad. They've got two points, so they're doing all right. But out in front at the moment, give them a big cheers. The Live Wires with five points. Oh, it's a nightmare for the Nightmares at the moment in last position, but it's the Live Wires out in front with five. Uh, and I'm kind of I'm, I'm warming to the Live Wires a little bit, actually. So I'm kind of pulling for them to win this one. I'm ambivalent because I actually just like all three teams. I like their names because they've not got the whole kind of like, oh, Team Perfect, Dream Team, the best. Nightmares. Conquerors, Livewise. Tell you what, Luke, they're proper tag team names. Yeah, they are. I'm fairly certain I went to a British wrestling indie show and saw the Nightmares versus the Livewise about seven or eight years ago. Toe Jam and Earl 2 for the Mega Drive is the sequel to the hit platform game that took the Mega Drive by storm. Can the returning duo do the same again this time round? Toe Jam and Earl 2 is undoubtedly one of the best games to be released this year. It's a challenge for one player and it's an entire lifetime's worth of play for two. There's all sorts of little bonus screens, tons of hidden things to find. And I particularly like the funk scan. Plenty of action and loads of pulsating, nauseating colours, which I really adore. Our motley crew of reviewers this week includes Andy Nuttall of Games Master Magazine, Jazz Rignall from Me Machine Sega, and Joe Spilser from Sega Zone, and fuck me sideways, we're kicking things off brilliantly here with Toe Jam and L2, Panic on Funkatron. Now, I, I, I want a bit of a sweary rampage back in Series 1 because these pricks didn't like Toe Jam and L and absolutely slaughtered it in their review. However, they proper pull it back here with their review of Panic on Funkatron. Panic on Funkatron is absolutely brilliant. And I didn't know that Jazz was on this episode. But as soon as it came up with Toe Jam and L2, Panic on Funkatron, I was like, I really hope that Jazz is on this. Because I know for a fact that Jazz is going to like this. Because it's not just a platform game. It's an exploration platform game. It's got a Metroid style of gameplay to it. And I think Jazz will really like that. So I was bloody thrilled when Jazz's face popped up. And what do you know? He did like it because there's loads to do. There is loads to do. I am sad we didn't get the original sequel to Toe Jam and Earl because when they started developing a sequel, they developed it based off of the first game. They took the themes and ideas and the gameplay mechanics and they started to evolve it. Now, I really like the first Toe Jam and Earl. I went back and I played it. it a bunch after your sweary rampage because I hadn't played it a huge amount because, you know, not a Mega Drive owner. Don't hold it against me. But apparently Sega weren't so keen on them sticking with that for the sequel. They wanted them to go for something a bit more accessible. And I hate to use the word, Luke, but generic. 100%. No, I totally agree with you because I think the ToeJam & Earl is not a pick-up-and-play game. It really isn't. It doesn't give you a whole lot of information and you've got to work at it to kind of like get through it. 
whereas Panic on Funkatron is a platforming game. It's just as long as you kind of like get the Metroid style of it, you're, you're kind of good to go. It is a beautiful inversion of the typical human trapping aliens or defeating aliens kind of thing because the first game involved Toe Jam and Earl trying to escape Earth and go back to their home planet. Well, here we are, the second game. They're back on Funkatron. But, ah, oh, those pesky humans, they stowed away on the spaceship, Luke. I know. And now they're just running around taking pictures of things. So what Toe Jam and Earl have to do is they have to catch them, stuff them in jars, and send them back to Earth. It's a nice spin on things. And this game looks great. It sounds great. It plays great. Again, I wish we'd got to see the original vision for the sequel, but if I remember correctly, the third Toe Jam and Earl game does take us back to that original concept and is okay. It's, yeah, the Xbox One's fine, I guess. It's it's all right. Um, but yeah, I, I really, really like Panic on Funkatron. A friend of mine, uh, Craig, and, and I used to play this a lot uh, back in the day. Really, really dug this game. I mean, it took me a little while to kind of wrap my head because I hadn't played Metroid. So I was kind of used to a very much straight style of platforming. So I wasn't used to the kind of like more adventure sort of explorative style of it. But I really liked it. And I, I like the rap battles that you've got to do in it as well. There's a lot of little fun, like little mini games and stuff. Uh, yeah, 90% for Panic on Funkatron. I think a well-earned 90% as well. And my favorite review comment as much as I like seeing Jazz to be positive about a platform game, actually goes down to Joss, who loves the nauseating colours. Yeah. I just love having a sentence which uses the word love and nauseating in a positive way. It's time to buckle up. With the recent flood of driving games, F1 pole position on the Super Nintendo is going to have to be pretty special. Can it lead the other racing games in its tracks? No hills. The first thing that strikes you about this game is that it's entirely flat. The Mode 7 graphics are very, very fast though, and you do get a great feeling of speed as you zoom around the track. It's a split-screen racing game and the action is great. Um, you've got all the realistic F1 cars, you've got drivers that you know, and it's tough too. It's also got very realistic sound effects which make for an atmospheric and addictive game. Good stuff. I like Andy's comment at the start of this where he's like, well, there's no hills, which makes it feel very flat. Luke, are you an F1 person? Are you a Formula 1 type? I'm not an F1 person, I'm afraid. My brother is, but it's not really my cup of tea, to be honest. Maybe I'm misremembering, and I'm sure I will be corrected on this, so I do this in the knowledge that the internet will come and find me. I don't remember Formula 1 being especially hilly. I don't know much about F1, but one of the things I would say that I did know about F1 is that it's a very flat thing because those cars are not particularly designed for vertical climbing because they're so low to the ground criticizing a game that is displaying a racing style that is known for being fairly flat and i'm not saying there aren't some slight slopes inclines angles because i'm fairly certain i've seen a few in the bits that i've watched or played but to criticize that game for being flat is shooting yourself in the foot a bit but he does redeem himself by you know going back to mode 7 heaven because they look fast and they move nicely Jazz like the split screen racing with the realistic F1 cars and the drivers you know, which Joe's putting over like the realistic sounds and everything. Like, because I'm assuming this has got the F1 license, which is why it's able to have the cars and the race and things like that. So if you're going to do an F1 license game, you are going to want it to feel like it's an F1 game as opposed to just a bog standard racer. No, it absolutely was a Formula One license and it had the base courses from the 92 Formula One season. 
Now, there were a few international differences for different localizations. The big one was that the European version of the game had all tobacco sponsorship removed, which if you think about 90s Formula One, there were a lot of cars with no sponsorship on because Marlboro, Benson and Hedges, they were all over racing cars. Also, when the game was released in Japan at first, it was single player only. The multiplayer didn't come through until the North American and European release. Hmm. That surprises me. I'm more used to things being simplified when they get translated to English rather than yeah. having like features added, like particularly something like multiplayer. That's not a small thing to add. That's not like a pallet ship. That's a whole different chunk of the game. While we only heard it in the background while they were talking, I would say they were bang on with the sound effects. Those are some great Formula One car noises for this era of time. It appeared to have the Doppler shift as cars went around. They had that very unique kind of... Um, harshness that Formula One engines have. So I was somewhat surprised that it only got 78%. I had the exact same note. The way that these lot were praising this game for only then get 78% seems very, very at odds. If Atari Jaguar is the future of video gaming, it's going to have to have some hot games. We checked out Alien vs. Predator. In Alien vs. Predator, you are charging around a space station, futuristic space station, and you can play one of the three protagonists. You can be a predator, a colonial marine, or an alien. We have actually constructed models and built sets and filmed them and then digitized them and put them into the game. Everything's actually being generated as you look at it. So you can sidestep, you can move around, you can circle. Uh, Lots of things. You can hide behind a pillar as an alien comes charging towards you. The Atari Jaguar certainly looks capable of handling another dimension in video gaming. Look out for Alien vs Predator around April. I'm glad to see the in-development feature come back after a one-week absence, and it's looking at a bit of a banger as well. And you want to talk about a game that will probably shift some Atari Jaguar units. It's AVP, and this is one of the few Jaguar games I own. I've got this, Cybermorph and Doom, and this is proper good stuff, this. This is arguably one of the best games that came out with the Atari Jaguar. Certainly the best original game. Yep. The only thing that I think really hinders its place in history is it was followed by better AVP games on the PC. Yeah, I was going to say, the PC game that comes out in a couple of years' time absolutely eclipses this. In some ways, I kind of actually almost prefer the SNES one as well, the scrolling beat-em-up style. I think that has actually aged way better than this because this is, you know, it's early days 3D graphics and they talk about how it's digitized stuff. You know, they've constructed these sets and digitized the things. They do at times feel like cardboard cutouts, which I, it doesn't, it has not aged it well. I mean, they say in this little preview that they didn't just like start drawing sprites with this game. They actually made models and filmed them. So what we're seeing here is kind of as much in line with Mortal Kombat and that ilk as with your more traditional Doom type shooters or Wolfenstein 3D. The development history of this game is a little bit interesting because it originally started as an Atari Lynx title. No way. Where it was going to be a corridor-based shooter, and it was actually going to have a bunch of references to the Dark Horse AVP comics. I'm actually quite a fan of the way Dark Horse handled the Alien Predator and Alien vs. Predator licenses. Around this time and over the next couple of years in the 90s, I had a real soft spot for the big, chunky paperbacks that was kind yeah. of covering the space between, I guess, Aliens and whatever came next. And Alien 3 biffed that because it completely ruined the whole Ripley's back bit that they did in those books. Spoilers, they're still worth going out and reading. You can get omnibuses of them now. But 
it was a really fun way to do the property, and I wish that the AVP movies had paid slightly more attention to them in many ways. In any way, mm-hmm. in fact. But that was cancelled. They then planned to port the SNES version, the one that you just mentioned, to the Jaguar. But guess what, Luke? Got cancelled. It got cancelled. And then it changed to a first-person shooter when Atari resubmitted the project proposal to both 20th Century Fox and to Activision. It became one of the best-selling games for the Atari Jaguar. It was the killer app. And they'd already begun discussion on AVP2, but Atari dropped out of that just before they discontinued the Jaguar. Yeah, I was going to say, I'd imagine it's probably the, the, the falling sales or, you know, the, the barely starting sales of the Jaguar is probably going to put an end to any sort of sequel to this coming out, even if it is the best-selling game for it. So a lot of the game's sound effects, they were samples provided by Atari's sound department. They also sampled a lot of sound effects and stuff from the movies. An interesting side note is that the former vice president of Atari, Richard Miller, had just recently had a kid nice little baby Hmm. and that's what the alien screams were recorded and modified from (laughs) it was the sound of the baby crying which just makes it even creepier because aliens are already pretty creepy with their phallicness and their whole just existence really but also going see those aliens that's the modified scream of a baby yeah totally but as we said it released it came out critical acclaim killer app the atari probably the most impressive game that came out for that platform easily certainly from the original side of things but actually i think overall i think it's most of the ports aren't much better on the jaguar than they were on other consoles and while i do think that it is like one of the best versions of doom is available on the jaguar it doesn't have the music which i think is kind of like a a one of the key aspects of, of doom's brilliance so yeah i do think that avp maybe outside of Tempest 2000, is the best game that the Jaguar ever put out. And it certainly shows the faith they had in this game that when it came to launching the Atari Jaguar in Japan, Cybermorph was gone, the packing game was AVP. But Luke, I hate to say this, guess what? What's that? There was an abandoned conversion for the Jaguar CD. Ah, gutted. (laughs) Also, guess what? What's that? There was an abandoned version for the Jaguar VR headset as well. (laughs) <laughs> I can't believe that we're talking about a Jaguar game that actually came out and I still got to guess what you twice. When I made the notes, I actually wrote with a bit of glee, I get to guess what Luke twice. <laughs> and by the time we got to it, I was just like, oh man, I feel just like bad. Because <laughs> it was such a good game. But yeah. if you can't play it, if there's no easy way for you to play it, don't worry, just go and play the PC ports. They're great. Yeah. Yeah, the PC game's absolutely wicked. Now, it's time for the first question in the Games Master Room of the Future competition. Get your red eyepieces ready, because here comes the first question. Don't forget, the answer to the question will be a number. Make a note of it, because you'll be needing it later. We'll have the second question for you next week. Well, now you can also look like a big brain boffin, because you managed to work out what the question is on the Room of the Future without getting your special red eye thing out. It's got to be a number, so that actually makes deciphering the question and knowing if I'm right slightly easier. But in this case, I looked at it, I paused it, and it says, how many games are there on Mario All-Stars? Oh, so at this point, it's four. Not three, because a lot of people would think three, but no, because we technically get two Mario 2s, or Mario, Mario 1.5, Mario 2, depending on, yeah. I don't know, 
which way the wind's blowing. It's not until late this year that we get Mario All-Stars plus World. Yeah, so four at the moment, five in the future, at which point the competition's over, so who gives a sh- Well, I think it's time we got into another challenge. What are we going to play, Games Master? For my platform challenge, I've chosen a game with a central character for whom I have special affection. Tinhead for the Sega Mega Drive. Our contestants have 45 seconds to score the highest points possible by shooting hordes of strange villains and collecting the valuable treasures which pepper the Martian landscape. I'll award five points for the highest score, two for the runner-up, and zero for the lowest. Ash, my first note here is this looks like an Amiga game. I'm going to assume it was an Amiga game. Nope. It was an Amiga, an Atari ST, and various other console games. Nope. This was not a straight Mega Drive game. It looks too much like a Atari game. Well, okay. It gets a little complicated. I'll just read the opening bit from Wikipedia, just to make sure that you realise I'm not bullshitting <laughs> Tinhead is a platform video game developed by Micropose UK and published by Ballistic and Spectrum Holobyte for the Sega Genesis. Read Mega Drive. So no, this game was only ever released for the Sega Mega Drive. However, hmm. ports for both the Amiga and Super Nintendo Entertainment System were in development and scheduled for 1994 were cancelled. I find that so interesting because it, this looks like it's James Pond. Like this is just like there are certain styles of games that look like they belong on certain consoles, and this just looks like an Amiga title. Like even down to like the way that the numbers pop up when you get points. I think it's because you look at the development team, you look at where they were. They were a European. They were, yeah. yeah, they were Micropros. They were European or even UK-based team. This was the style of game that we were making. This was the graphical style. Guess what, Luke? What's that? Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm, it, the, the whole point of the guess what, Ash, is that you get to tell me what the guess what is. I know, I was just seeing if I'd brokered you yet. But no, <laughs> guess what, Luke? There was an Atari Jaguar version, <laughs> and it wasn't just planned. It was completed and never <laughs> released. They completed the game. It was ready for release and then was cancelled because of low sales of the system. Yeah, I mean, that sounds about right for pretty much everything, to be honest. GM's got some special affection for Tinhead, I guess the Chrome Dome stick together. Simple challenge show, 45 seconds for the highest points possible, and once again, they reiterate 5-2-0 split, which I just do feel is redundant. You can do it at the beginning of an episode once, but having it on every challenge... Yeah. That's the sort of repetition I'm used to seeing out of American television. Mm-hmm not out of British television. Okay, the game is Tinhead. Should be a good one. Right, Dean from The Nightmare, he's up first. Dave, tell us a bit about Dean, please. Well, Dean is a bit of an unknown quantity, so Dean could be a ringer or... He could be rubbish. We'll have to wait and see. Dean from The Nightmares is going to be up first because they came last in the first round, so they're the ones who are going to set the pace. And I, Dave calls him an unknown quantity in all of this, which I find to be a very interesting thing. Does that mean that he wasn't part of the qualifiers and you've just got no facts about him whatsoever? Oh, he was part of the qualifiers and he just wasn't that interesting. So they don't <laughs> yeah. have any they don't have any facts. And yeah, Dave says he could be a ringer, and then Dex goes, or oh, he could be rubbish. I love the double act. When I started watching this episode and writing the notes, and every time we had one of these little moments, and I'm like, man, Dave and Dex are on fire. Yeah, their rapport has gotten really, really good. Uh, as this has gone on, which is why we theorise that the Christmas special was probably recorded very late or, you know, very the last thing because A, Dave's voice is going, but B, the dynamic between Dave and Dex is really, really cooking at that point. But you kind of see, like, if you watch from the first episode of the Team Championships to here, you can see a slow progression of these two just getting on and getting on and getting on to the point where they now become a pretty decent double act. 
they've got a, a report. It works well. But Dave theorized that Dean could be a ringer and he canes it through the level. He absolutely whoops through it, picks up 6,150 points, finds loads of caches of tokens, for some reason decides to exit the level just as the time runs out. I'm glad it was just as the clock hit zero, because if he'd done it 10 seconds earlier, he'd have looked like a proper chump. Well, I wrote here, like, he probably could have got some more points, like if he'd have jumped up back over and gone to the left. But yeah, he just saw, saw the time was going, like, well, I might as well just go through the end of the level, I guess, here. And yeah, my note was just like, oh, I wonder if he could have got some more points and that'll come back to bite him. I needn't have bothered with that, though, because the other two don't come within an arse's roar of his score. Clifford the Conquerors is up next. Dave, tell us a little bit about him, will you please, before he gets ready? Well, Cliff claims to have completed Super Mario World without losing a single life, so he has to be a platform demon, and this game should suit him down to the ground. Bullshit. Bullshit, because he runs into a baddie straight away, and again, and again, and dies with a score of 500 points. I loved uh, Dex, the London of the years, shouting out loud. Ian from the Livewise is up last, and Dave says that Cliff took him by surprise, and Ian shouldn't be any worse as he's a Sonic 1 buff. Ian also takes a bunch of hits, and is soon down to zero batteries, meaning one more hit and he's done, and then he's done, with a score of a thousand points, so he almost does worse but not quite. He wins by failing less. Yeah, he doubled the points of Cliff, but Cliff died with 24 seconds left on the clock, which means that within those, like, you know, 20-odd seconds that he had left, he only managed to get 500 more points on him. Just as a reminder, Dean, who was up first, got 6,000 points. Like, these two just did absolutely bobbins compared to it. Oh, the other thing I wanted to say about Dex as well, because Dave tells us that, you know, he completed Sonic 1 the day that he got it and things like that. And Dex just goes, well, what a ridiculous waste of money. <laughs> it's like, all right, Dex. I find this challenge a little frustrating because the game, it doesn't look like a bad game. It does look very amigory, And by that, we mean very British slash European developer. And that's fine. But going by what Dean did, this has the potential to be a really exciting and tense race against the clock if the other two challengers were worth a damn. Yeah. Like Cliff basically, like he misses a jump. And it's a really small jump as well, but he just completely biffs it. Anyway, disappointing performances aside, Dex, what are the tallies at the end of round two? Well, the Conquerors, they didn't do so well in their last challenge. They came last, so they've got nil points added to the two points they scored in the first challenge. That means they've got two overall. Next come the Live Wires in the last challenge. They scored two on that one and five on the first one. That means they got a big seven. We're all pretty good. And then first in the last challenge, if you understand my meaning, was the Nightmares. They got five points added to their nil from the first challenge. That means they got five points overall. But again, I mean, we mentioned it last week, but bloody hell, will someone tighten up the script that Dexter is reading from when he's giving out the score? Because like you don't need to say 25 different numbers. Just give me what the update is. I still reckon that he's got the graphic that takes up a certain amount of time and he's reading to that. <laughs> it's like the way they used to dub things like Starfleet and Japanese animation is they would look at the amount of mouth movement they had to fill and write that many words. Mm -hmm. So rather than just going, ha, your time has come, it will be, ha, I believe we have defeated you because your time has come. The time of your end is now because the time come now. Yes. And that's what they would do. And I think Dex is doing a bit of that. Yeah, I, I can't think of any logical reason why a normal human being would speak like that, particularly when they have a bloody script writer. So the mm -hmm. fault must lie 
with the script writers. Right, well done, well done, well done, well done. Conquerors, not so good. What went wrong? Team captain. Pressure on the night. Pressure on the night. Couldn't live up to the standard. So, what went wrong for you then, eh? What was that wrong? You had too big or something? No, stacked it. Stacked it. And that was it. It was all over. Yeah, poor old Chris. Like, you know, he just said the pressure of the night got to him. That's why their team just could not perform. They didn't live up to the standards. And poor Cliff. Cliff just openly admits he stacked it. Absolutely I stacked it. I love the it. fact that he said he stacked it. That's really cool. I just stacked it. But that's it. The Conquerors have to say goodbye as Blast Hard Cheese leads them off into the distance, probably to do a quick round of jobs on the furnaces before being thrown out of the academy and back to a comprehensive school. Right, we've got a very special celebrity challenge coming up. Should be a good one. Hang about for that. And we also got these two teams battling out in the final challenge for a place in our semis. So stay right there. We'll be back in a minute. Right after these commercial messages. In an emergency, you can count on the police, the fire brigade, the ambulance service, and the AA. To our members, we're the fourth emergency service. Ah! My friends at Nintendo have placed four Super Mario games on the same cart for less than 50 of your pounds. Super Mario Bros. 1 is pretty tricky. <laughs> Super Mario Brothers 2 is a little more advanced. <laughs> Super Mario Brothers 3 is... <laughs> but Super Mario Brothers The Lost Levels is so difficult, it could actually unhinge the balance of your mind. Aren't you that talentless celebrity women find repellent? See what I mean? He's completely tonto. <laughs> Mario All-Stars, an infuriating minute of Nintendo. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What's it like going into action with today's most exciting warplanes? Good man. Tornado pilots tell you in takeoff. What's it like fighting fires from the air? What can we learn from aviation disasters? Page by page, week by week, takeoff tells you everything you want to know about aircraft and what it's like to fly them. Get part one of takeoff this week with the first two pieces of this free model kit and build your own tornado.
Master, and it's time for our Celebrity Challenge. Please give a big warm welcome, if you will, for Simone Robinson, better known as Phoebe from Neighbours. Yeah. Australia is a long way to come to be on Games Master. It is, but I saw the challenge and I thought, well, you know, I, I'll travel the 22 hours. Huh? <laughs> and you went for it. That's right. So she's come all the way from Australia just to be on Games Master. Thank you That's very true, much. Yeah. Yes. Well, coming back from the ad break, we've got Simone Robertson from Neighbours uh, as our celebrity this week. It feels like it's been ages since we've had someone from Neighbours on this show. And in keeping with the tradition, by the time this airs, she has left Ramsey Street. Because it often seems that most of the time when these actors get sent on the UK press tour... Oh, sorry, no. She exclusively came over for Games Master. <laughs> Definitely isn't just there on a press junket. It's after they've left the show. It's basically going, OK, we've got six more months of your character. You're not needed for filming. Because we don't need you for filming, we can send you over to do the interview round and we'll still get some money out of you from this. It's a very cynical way of doing things, but there are also two sides to that coin because it means that while she's over here, Simone can look for work. And I think when you end up in a position where we had a number of Australian actors getting cast in British shows and TV series and such, it does come off the back of this. I wish I had a lot to say about Simone. I can tell you basically what her Wikipedia page says, which is she was born in 1975 in Melbourne. She was known for her two-year stint on Neighbours as Phoebe Gottlieb. In addition to acting, she also trained in jazz and tap dancing. She previously dated one of her co-stars. And she's now married to Jean-Marc Russ, who played Boris in the Australian soap opera Breakers and lives in New York City. That was her entire Wikipedia entry. Normally, I start at Wikipedia and then look at the reference links to find other stuff because it leads you on to interviews and such. Not much to go on. But mm. I will say this, she seems very nice. She does seem very game for this, and she's quite game to kind of play along with the pretense that she has come over here exclusively to do a Games Master Challenge as well, like doing the big 22-hour flight and all that. Now, listen, we've got a challenge coming up. Uh -huh. Do you want to choose someone from the audience to take right. on a challenge against you? Yeah, one of, the, one of these lot standing down there. Yeah. Yeah. Please, he's a happy man. Tell us your name. Oh, I'm Sam Bedford of Fireford. Bedford, yeah? So, what do you reckon of this challenge with someone, eh? Oh, I'm going to win, aren't I? And she picks someone out of the crowd, and it's a lad in a very, very baggy T-shirt, which I very much appreciated, uh, called Sam Bedford, who just claims that he's going to win. But what on earth are we going to be playing, Games Master? My celebrity challenge tonight is the bizarrely named Proc for the Super Nintendo. Our neighbourly guest and her opponent each have a single life through which to race through the colourful island landscape, avoiding a variety of deadly perils along the way. The quicker to reach the end of the level will be rewarded with my precious golden joystick. It's a game that we had reviewed not too long ago. It's Plock, and it's basically just race through the level as fast as possible. And yeah, this may end up being one of the quickest celebrity challenges we're ever going to see. Absolutely. I can make an observational comment about Simone. She has a good foot in height on Dexter Fletcher. He barely comes up to her shoulder. She's a tall lass. Mm. And I did love that she picked this random kid from the audience and he's very well rehearsed for a random kid. He's, he finds his mark and he reads his line. He's like, I'm Sam Bedford. I just love the fact that he was basically just standing there waiting to be picked. Because you know you got everyone else being like with their hands up being like, pick me, pick me, pick me. He's just stood there being like, no, but it's me though. So 
I guess I'll just wait until I'm picked with my huge baggy shirt that I'm wearing. And I think Simone even says, it's like, oh, he looks very enthusiastic or something along <laughs> those lines in the background. And it's like, she's there to do the press junkets, but also she's there to have a bit of fun. So then comes the moment when yeah. I just wanted to crawl under my desk and die a bit because I'd been writing all these notes, bigging up how great Dex and Dave were. And then Dave just, oh, I know it's the 90s, but also... Hell. Dave, someone's up first. What do you reckon her chances are? Any ideas? Well, someone's quite a good games player, yeah. but uh, you've got to be a brave man to bet on a girl on a computer game, and I'm feeling like a bit of a coward today. I'm not putting my money on someone. You're living dangerously, Dave, that's for sure. When you go down the streets, you're going to get a few handbags coming in your direction, I fear. Anyway! I know, I mean, yeah, so he essentially says, you just heard the clip bit then, like, you know, you've got to be brave to put money on a girl playing a game, this, that, and the other. And, and then I don't think Dex is much better, but being like, oh, you're going to have some handbags thrown at you when you get outside, mate. And it's just, also wrote my notes was like, no, oh, it was a different time. It shouldn't have been that different. <laughs> no. A season ago, we had Jane Goldman on commentary. There was a woman that games were how she made her living. But it is like, you know, they are appealing to a certain sort of demographic. Like this show is clearly, and I'm not saying that this is the right way to do it, but this is the way that toys are done. It's the way the games are done, this and the other. But this is targeted towards boys. Every single challenge that we've had, bar I think one, maybe two, in this team championship has been a boy. So it's a boy host. It's a boy commentator. It's boys in the review zone. It's usually boys in the consultation zone. So I, you know, I, I, I know what they were going for. It, it lands horribly. But it, I, I tell you what's shocking is that recently I was chatting to uh, my friend Denise Salcedo that I do a podcast with, and we were talking about the Yorkie campaign of "It's Not for Girls." Yorkie, please, mate. Oh, you want a Yorkie, do you? Yeah. <laughs> not bad, by any chance. You're having a laugh. Explain the offside rule then. A player cannot be in an advanced position of the opponent's last defender when the ball is played. Open that. What kind of flowers are these? Purple. Funny? Yeah. Stockings are tight. Stockings. Oh, look! A big hairy spider! You know, that wrapper really brings out the beautiful blue of your eyes. Really? Yorkie. Five big masculine chunks of chocolate. It's not for girls. And she was stunned by when I was telling her about it. I was like, oh yeah, they ran this whole campaign where I was like, Yorkie is a chocolate bar for boys. It's not for girls. And she was like, that's incredibly shocking. I was like, what's even more shocking is that that ran in the, in the bloody early 2000s. I thought it was like, if, and she said, if you just told me it was in the 70s, I would have said, yeah, that was a different time. Early 2000s is far, far too late to be doing that. And I do think early 90s, it's probably too late to be doing this joke as well. We've had moments, we've talked about them before, where this show has not aged gracefully. This is a bad one. And it did sour the episode for me a little. Because while it is a moment and it's gone, I was just so high on this like kind of commentary team. But anyway, let's get on to the challenge itself because Simone kicks off and she jumps a lot, but she makes it through the level. It's not like she fails to get through. She does it in 21 seconds. And the one thing I can say above everything else is she looks like she's having the time of her life. Every time they cut to her, she's laughing, smiling, reacting to what's on the screen. She's either genuinely enjoying it or she's selling it well. I don't care which because either's good. Either makes entertaining television. And the fact she completes the level 
that's the key thing to me. It's not one of these celebrity challenges where the celebrity picks up a joypad, having never handled one before, and then biffs it in 10 seconds. She goes through the level, and without wishing to spoil the result we're about to discuss, it's not like the time she sets is beaten by that much. Yeah, because our man Sam here just runs through the level and does it in 18 seconds. Like, there's really not much to say about either of the actual two challenges themselves, because you say, like, it is just you run, you jump, you finish. Like, the whole challenge, end to end, is 38 seconds long. And a lot of the challenges that we've had for the platforming stages on, you know, in the team championships have been given 45 seconds each. These two, like, they did it in less than that, and they did two runs of the game. Sam's got icing. That's got to be one of the fastest celebrity challenges I've ever seen in my life. I can't wait to see the show because I blinged and missed half of it. Yeah, probably. Oh, then let's get the guys back on stage. Give them a big round of applause. Come on. Simone, you're obviously quite annoyed about losing. I don't think I'm going to be able to sleep for a week. It's oh, quite terrible. Yeah. You've devastated. You've, you've gutted her down. Oh. Don't you feel bad? Nah. Dexter say that it was one of the quickest challenges he'd seen, and Dave says he can't wait to see the show as he blinked and he missed it. Not hyperbole. Didn't really have a chance to even start on the commentary before, actually, the challenges were just over. It doesn't mean it was boring. It just means it was quick. And... Post-challenge, Dex asks Simone if she's annoyed about losing, and she says she doesn't think she'll be able to sleep for a week. But Sam, cheeky little beggar that he is, he doesn't feel bad, as it means that Big McLarge is going to present him with the Golden Games Master joystick. Oh yeah, he's done all right for himself, really. Yeah, it's not bad for 20 seconds. Yeah, it's a challenge that, like, as you say, it's not boring. It's just there. There's really, outside of, of Dave's commentary gaffe, there's nothing to say about it. Despite the fact that they didn't like it too much in the review zone, it's not a bad game. I mean, mm. Nintendo clearly liked it. It almost became a Nintendo game. It sold pretty well. The character's still knocking around a bit. It, it's okay. It's not a spectacular challenge. It's a fun challenge. It's maybe a bit too short. Maybe they could have chosen a slightly longer level. I don't know. It's not the worst celebrity challenge we've had. It's also not the best. Hello, and welcome to my consultation time. Who is my first member with a sore problem? Oi, Games Master, is there any way of making Rocket Knight Adventures on the Mega Drive harder? I find it too easy. Well, it just so happens that you're in luck. There's a secret option which allows you to play a super hard version of the game. When the Konami logo appears, press down six times, up twice, then down twice. You can now select to play the game on very hard difficulty level. Oh, good. Laters. Uh, I love Rocket Knight Adventures. It's, it's sat on my desk at the moment as part of my Mega Drive stand. I've got a lot of love for the game. I really like it as well. I've played it in a couple of different iterations because it's been released on multiple platforms in multiple collections. There was a SNES version made but never actually released, although I believe a ROM dump of that has emerged since, as is often the way. I like it well enough that I've actually got a uh, Rocket Knight Adventures pin badge over my pinboard collection. Oh, cool. Anyway, uh, it's a great running, jumping, shooting, side-scrolling platform game. As I said, it's out there in lots of different versions. There were sequels. The comic strip appeared in Sonic the Comic of our yeah. friend podcast, Sonic the Comic, the podcast. In an interview, Kitching said that Sparkster was the easiest game to adapt into a story due to being similar to the Sonic the Hedgehog games. He was working on a second Sparkster story, 
but the plan was dropped when Fleetway were unable to obtain permission from Konami to use the game. Oh, wacky Konami and your lack of desire to make money from things that isn't pachinko. I was going to say, they've got pachinko machines to be making all of their money from. Rocket Knight Adventures comes like, quite late in sort of like, you know, the, the Sonic the Comic time span. Bearing in mind, like, you know, uh, Dave and Chris, who are doing the podcast at the moment, are in 1995 and they still haven't got to the Rocket Knight Adventures comic strip. So, and here we are, like the start of 1994, the game's out there, the game's already in the consultation zone, so it's a little way off. And like, I think by the time they get to it, I, like it's not too far from Sonic the Comic becoming just Sonic stuff. I do have some good news. There isn't a Rocket Knight Adventures Pachinko, so there is some hope. I wonder if they know they actually still have it. Shh. <laughs> Cut that bit out. <laughs> or I probably won't, because then it wouldn't make any sense. Never mind. Games Master, I'm having problems with my girlfriend. Can you help me? Oh, well, I'm sorry. I think you've come to the wrong place. No, 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 no. We just want to know where the secret room is on Magic Boy for the Amiga. Oh, that's no problem. We can soon sort that out. On level eight, a world two, make your way to the top right-hand corner where you'll find a spring. Jump on this, then fire into the wall. You will reveal a secret bonus room where you can collect oodles of valuable goodies. I hope that satisfies your girlfriend. Thanks, Games Master. You're a lifesaver. My pleasure. Now, our next one has got a bit of wackiness to it, but I do quite like this bit of wackiness to it, which is our lad said that he's having problems with his girlfriend. Games Master's like, oh, I think you might have come to the wrong place here. He's like, no, 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 it's my girlfriend is having some troubles with Magic Boy on the Amiga. And Games Master's very relieved. <laughs> oh, that I can help you out with. I thought this was actually quite cute, really. But yes, but World 8-2, go to the top right, bounce on the springs, get into a bonus room. That should satisfy your girlfriend. When I'm making my notes for like various challenges in Games World, I always put a top of each paragraph section in bold is the name of the game and the platformer. For this one, I just put girlfriend, multi-platform. <laughs> <laughs> but the kid thinks Games Master's a lifesaver. Well... There you go. Games Master, please could you tell me how to get the burn arrow in Zelda 4 for the Game Boy? Ah, yes. Um, you simply steal it. Simply go into the shop and pick up the bow and arrow. Now run around the shopkeeper four times to confuse him. Then make your break for the door. If you're quick enough, you'll be able to escape. The bow and arrow is all yours. But don't go back to the shop or you'll be killed by an irate shopkeeper. But here we are, our last entry into the consultation zone here. I fucking love this. It's on Link's Awakening on the Game Boy, where you get the bone arrow. Bone arrow, proper well pricey. It's 980 rupees. And it's something you need quite early doors as well. So you could just go and grind away, uh, getting all your rupees, just go around cutting the grass, taking your rupees up and up and up, go into the shop and get your 980 rupees spent, get your bow and arrow. Or you grab the bow and arrow, and you walk around the shopkeeper until he gets a little, not dizzy, but until he's just not looking at you or the door, and then you can leave the shop, and then you've got yourself a bow and arrow. The one thing the Games Master doesn't talk about here, but it's one of my favorite aspects of the game, is it, if you do do this, no matter what name you put in as your character name, you will forever be known as Thief, and everyone in Link's Awakening will call you Thief for the rest of the game. If you do go back in the shop, you are, to quote Dex, brown bread. Exactly, yeah. So then you go back in and the shopkeeper, like the music plays like, and the shopkeeper says like, how dare you come back in here after seeing it from me? And he zaps you 
And then, I mean, essentially, it just means you can go back into the shop again because you do need to go back in there to buy some more stuff. I said it at the top of the show, but I did this every single time I played Link's Awakening. I've never bought that bow and arrow outright. I've only ever stolen the thing because my brother showed me how to do it like uh, very early doors. He showed me how to, you know, oh, this is a really quick way to get the bow and arrow. And that's the only way I've ever done it since. I'm just absolutely shocked and stunned. Just every time I just think you're like a super nice guy, you just, you're, even in video games, dude, even in video games. I don't care that they call me thief. I need, to, I need the bow and arrow, man. I've got to save stuff. But you know what? That's enough hints, tips and cheats. Let's get into the final round. What are we playing, Games Master? The game I've selected for tonight's final is the bone-crushing WrestleFest 3 Countdown for the Neo Geo. Our contestants must pin their opponents to the canvas for a count of three to assure victory over one doubt of in-your-face beat-em-up action with special moves aplenty. I want a good, dirty contest. This is a really interesting game to get featured on Games Master. I was really excited by this. Just looking at the game, this is definitely an SNK game. This feels like an SNK game. This is, rather than SNK going, we're going to do a Street Fighter, this is SNK going, we're going to do a WrestleFest or doing a Saturday Night Slam Masters. Apart from the fact that this actually predates Saturday Night Slam Masters by a few months, but it was known as Three Count Bound Overseas, it was known as Fire Suplex in Japan, and part of that is SNK capitalizing on other things, because guess what wrestling game series was doing really well in Japan at this time? It was Fire oh, Pro Wrestling. Fire Pro Wrestling, indeed. But this combined two other series that SNK had already enjoyed success with. You had the massive cartoonish muscle-bound graphics of Fatal Fury, and then you had the kind of more three-dimensional fighting of the King of the Monsters series. And so what you have here is a wrestling game, and it's lovely. It is a lovely, fun game. It's not the most in-depth wrestling gameplay you're going to get. It's not a fire pro. It's not a No Mercy. It's not a WrestleMania. It's not a virtual pro wrestling. It's none of those things. But it is big. It is bold. It is fun. It's a coin muncher. It made them a lot of money. And one thing I will say, in the arcade at least, it is prohibitively difficult like in single player mode it's tough it was there to make money and they were unashamed in that i mean it looks tough to play really and like I, we see that in our two competitors uh, in the final here uh, in jared and dean like it does look like it is tricky to pick up and we saw this last week which is that we're in a period of time now where the predominant beat-em-ups that people are playing are street fighter and mortal kombat and they're trying to adapt what they know from those into games where they don't really kind of fit the mold. Like, you know, when we had Tournament Fighters, the Turtles game, and the lad who won on that was like, well, I'm really good at Street Fighter, and it's basically the same game. So I was quite quick to, to pick this up. A lot of these, but we saw it with Elfmania last week, and we see it again here. These are beat-em-up games, but you've got to think about it slightly differently. And I don't know if our players have quite grasped how differently you play. Like, I would love to have seen this as a Games Master Challenge with two people who knew three count bout really, really well and would have been able to show off, like, all of the moves and things like that. I think also it was a little ambitious in what they were trying to do for an arcade wrestling game, particularly at that point, because WrestleFest is a great game, but it's also a very simple game. Punch, punch, kick, grapple, slam, signature pin, 
toss over the top rope. You you can basically pick up WrestleFest in one demo cycle because they'll show the controls. That's it, you're gone. This has lots of context-sensitive moves. There are top ropes, there are mid-range, there are aerial moves, there are dashing techniques, there are dirty tactics, which we see a few attempts at in this challenge. But there's also a lot to learn and a lot to take in and I think contributes to its difficulty. It was very, very popular at the time it came out. It was uh, one of the most popular games of April to May 1993. And it did try and mix the Street Fighter and Fatal Fury-style gameplay with WrestleFest. It features 10 fictional wrestlers. And I say fictional in Bucky O'Hare's because Dean has picked a guy called, well, Dave Perry, batting the odds on this one, just calls him Blubber Man. Basically, the big bruiser way, I'd say he's got a bit in common with Kamala, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Gerard, meanwhile, has chosen to be the faster Red Dragon, or as I know him, the Great Mooter. <laughs> yeah. When I saw him, I'm like, that looks a bit like the Great Mooter. Then he tries to do a green mist, and I'm like, that's definitely Mooter. That's, that's yeah, who that totally, is. Yeah, totally, they're, yeah. They're wrestling for the SWF, which stands for SNK Wrestling Federation, <laughs> even though there are at least a few genuine SWFs out there. Given that this bout kicks off and one of the first things that happens is Blubber Man tries to shank yeah, he pulls the, out a knife. the fake mooter. I immediately thought, oh, never mind wrestling general. This is more like FMW or Wing or IWA or the Deathmatch style. This game looks great. It looks big. It looks bold. The graphics, I would say, while not quite as charming as WrestleFest, are bigger. Like they they mm, really dominate the screen, and they've they've got that SNK art style down pat. It's great. There's a lot of attacks that miss, but when the attacks do hit, we get some really impressive little combos and string of moves. And it's not a one-sided fight. Things go back and forth. We're looking for a pinfall here, which thankfully, because it is an arcade game, means we're probably not going to end up with the same botches that we've had any other time we've had a pinfall-based victory. And there is a brief moment where Red Dragon looks to have this in the bag. Because Red Dragon gets all the health down. Like They're, they're putting this over on commentary as well, that it's not about, unlike something like Street Fighter Mortal Kombat, it's not about just getting your opponent's health down. It's about getting your opponent's health down and pinning them. And yeah, you're right. Like Red Dragon is the first person to get his opponent's health all the way down to nothing. And it's Blubber Man who has to then make the comeback. In the greatest traditions of wrestling possible, there is a last-minute comeback. It's a fiery comeback, and it ends on essentially zero energy either side. And even then, there's a pin attempt and a kick out at one. Yeah. Someone hasn't been to their classes on pacing and storytelling, but we then get another pin. It's a three count. Blubber Man wins. Blubber Man wins. Bagard. Blubber Man wins. Live wires, Ian. What went wrong with your man here? I thought he was going to win it. It was a close fight. It was a close fight. It was a very tough battle, that one. What, what actually went wrong? He just kept winning the grapples. Kept winning the grapples. That's what it come down to the end. Well, he had you out way, didn't he? He was a big, hefty lad. Big, hefty lad, weren't you? That's right, but all, all thanks to him, he done well, but came out in the end. Well, well very sportsman-like. Oh, but I don't think that makes him feel any better. In the post-match, we see some really, really nice 
uh, camaraderie, I suppose, some really good sportsmanship in there. Whereas, like, you know, Dean's like, you know what? He did really well. It's just that the better man won in the end. Really, really good sportsmanship between these two. And Dex praises that sportsmanship, but then says it doesn't help him feel any better. (laughs) (laughs) I I got a laugh out of that. One last thing I do just want to say on this game, and this is actually just a general recommendation, is there's a number of books that uh, I've referred to a couple of times while putting together this show. I've got Chris Scullion's uh, SNES Bible to hand, which I look at from time to time if I just want to see if there's any interesting facts worth reading out. For Three Count Bout, uh, I looked at the book Wrestling with Pixels, which went through a very troubled production cycle, but was kind of rescued by uh, my friends, the Hardcore Gaming 101 lot, and came out as one of their books, is out there to buy now as I think both physical and a PDF version, certainly a PDF version, as that's the version that I bought and, uh, and I have on my iPad that I just flip back and forward to. And if you like wrestling games, this is a really good title because this goes through it year by year, decade by decade. And yeah, it's a really useful little reference tome. Even the more obscure games get looked at. There's games in there that I've never heard of, and I've played a lot of bloody wrestling games. So if you fancy taking a look at it, I do recommend it. It's a nice little tome to flick through. Right, the Nightmares, well, they successfully guaranteed themselves a place in the championship semi-final. Next week, three more teams battle it out for a place in the Games Master Team Championship. But that's what we've got time for on this week's episode. I, I don't think I enjoyed three camp out perhaps as much as, as you did. And that might just be because what I wanted to see was people who really had got to grips with how it played to kind of then go at it. Whereas I think these were two people who really didn't, it, it never felt like the grappling system really came off and it sort of, it stumbled into a finish as opposed to there was someone who was definitely the best player on the game. The plot challenge, the server challenge, so quick, it may as well have just not been there. But I did enjoy um, the the Top Gear challenge at the start of things. And Tinhead, you know, the, the first players on that had a really, really solid run on it. Just, it's a shame that the other two were absolutely bobbins. And we got Toejam and L Panic on Funkatron in there. We got one of my favorite hints for Zelda on the Game Boy. So there was a, a lot I really liked about this episode, including that AVP feature that we get for the Jaguar. There is a lot of good in this episode. There's a lot of good things. There's a lot of good games. Actually, that's the key. There's a lot of good games. There isn't really a completely duff game in this episode. Mm. No. From the challenges to the reviews to the previews to the consultation zone, there are lots of great or at the very least entertaining games. Where it gets let down, as has happened a lot in Games Master, not just in Season 3, but across everything we've done so far, is sometimes... You get a joystick winner, and sometimes, to quote the currently departed Mr. Diamond, you get a plank. Mm-hmm. The Tin Head Challenge had two planks. It should have yeah. been a tighter challenge. Top Gear was actually a really good challenge all round. It was it was a really tight thing, and when you look at the space between first and second place, oh, oh, you couldn't ask for much more than that. And the game at the end, Three Count Bout, just looked so much fun. But you're right, if they'd had maybe slightly more time or more tuition or whatever goes on in that green room, maybe we'd be singing the praises of this game a lot more. One thing I will say is, as many of you are aware, because we've referenced it, we often record a couple of episodes at a time. Mm -hmm. And whilst, yes, this wasn't the best challenge in the world to end an episode on, I think one of the reasons I was so high on it 
is because it wasn't Elfmania. <laughs> well, that is very much true. Like it, it was a better challenge than Elfmania, but maybe not as good of a challenge as we had World Heroes a couple of weeks ago. No, but World Heroes, you can just play like you're playing Street Fighter. You don't exactly, even need to yeah. try. But that that's kind of what we're, we're at with the Games Master Team Championships, is that they want to have a beat-em-up challenge every single week because it was the style at the time. But there's only a, really a handful of beat-em-ups that kind of play a similar way. So what you have to do is then put in games like this, but you have players that are not used to games like this if, if, in a way, and they're not given the time to, to really get to grips with it, which is why we end up with challenges like Three Count Bouts, which is a great game that's just not played particularly great. It's a conundrum because I had a lot of fun talking about this episode, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for bad reasons. There is also the kind of stale fart in the air of the commentary around the Celebrity Challenge, which is going to irk me a little bit. Yes, it was of the time. Yes, it was very much a lads club. That doesn't excuse it. That's just the reason. Mm -hmm. If I look at this episode on games alone, it's a high rating. If I look at it on the quality of the gameplay we had and also some of the other stuff, it's a low one. It's a, This is probably the most conflicted I've felt about an episode for a while. With the Christmas episode, when we came up with the split score system, it's because, yes, the gameplay was terrible, but it was also very entertaining. But I don't think we can apply that here. It's definitely below 80. Oh, easily, because this isn't as good as last week's episode. I, I would probably say that this is the weakest of the team championship episodes we've had thus far. Because at least with the earlier team championships where the episodes haven't been particularly great, there has been, you know, there was the FIFA tournament that we had early doors. I do think that this is easily the weakest episode thus far. I'm trying to work out if I want to go below 70. And I'm not sure that I do because we, we had AVP. You know, there was yeah. good in this episode. Yeah, pa you know, Panic on Funkatron. There was some good stuff in here to, to talk about, but like that's, you know, and the, you know, Zelda and the consultation though, but those are just like, they're games that are being mentioned as opposed to like, I think if you're looking at this from a sort of a games playing perspective, I, I mean, I was going to go early 70s, very early 70s, like 71. I don't think I was going to go below 70 because I don't think it was like a terrible episode, but it certainly was a bland episode. I'm going to go with a number that can often be found in the early 80s on the front of a big red door for people that grew up with a certain era of children's TV programming on a Saturday. I'm going with number 73. <laughs> Very nice. And that is going to wrap it up for this episode of Games Master, episode 18. Bloody hell, we're, I mean, we're less than 10 episodes from the end now. We're eight episodes away from the end of, of Series 3, which seems so crazy. It feels like we've only just started Series 3. But anyway, thank you so much for listening. We love each and every single one of you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at underconsolepod. We're on Instagram at under.console. And you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to interact with us in real time, you want to chat with us, chat with other fans of Games Master, Under Consultation, video games in general, you can join our Discord where there's a lovely bunch of people having a lovely time. At a period in history when the world is a little dark and cold outside, it's nice to have something to keep you warm inside. And I think our Discord fits the slot quite nicely. That ended up being a lot filthier than I meant it to. But I guess that's just the effect of having recorded nearly three seasons of Games Master podcasts at this point. Details can be found in show notes and on our social media. If I'm going to put over our Discord, I'm just going to say Skitchin. And it all just because you say that and I will randomly appear. And I'll just be there to be like, what a great game that is. Skitchin! You're like Candyman 
but for Skitchin. And instead of like a fish hook on the hand, you've got... Um, Rollerblades. Rollerblades. Four hands. <laughs> They've been worse slasher villains. Yeah. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod. At the £5 level, you get next week's episode one week early and ad free. And at the £10 level, you get some extra bonus stuff. Ash, what do they get? They get a mug. They get stickers. They get badges. They get sweeties. They get retro trading cards. They get £5 of our first under consultation t-shirt, which can be bought along with other stickers, badges and mugs. And that can be found at our website, underconsultation.com. And a shout out to those £10 backers, David, Colin, Zach, William, Simon, Sean, Robert, Rich, Phil, Nick, Misha, Matt, Joe, Jamie, Gordon, Cliff, Adam Warrington and Adam D. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in seven days time for episode 19 of series three. Take care, everyone. Good night. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.